You're listening to Season 10 of Mobile Suit Breakdown, a weekly podcast covering the entirety of sci-fi mega-franchise Mobile Suit Gundam from 1979 to today. This is Episode 10.4, Last Stand in Casarelia, and we are your hosts, I'm Tom, and if you ask me, the real terror of Victory Gundam is whatever alien doppelganger is pretending to be the dog Flanders in this episode. And I'm Nina, new to Victory Gundam and having flashbacks to college this week. I am sleep deprived, I no longer know if my writing is any good or even makes sense, I am ready for a cold drink and some pizza. Mobile Suit Breakdown is made possible by 733 paying subscribers. No new patrons this week. But a few returning patrons. Yay! (laughs) Thank you all for keeping MSB Genki, and special thanks to Emery Laserwolf for the book from our wish list. This week, Victory Episode 4, Tatakai wa Dare no Tameni, or For Whom Do We Fight? It was written by Godo Kazuhiko, storyboarded by Chief Director Tomino, and directed by Nishimori Akira. Nishimura Nobuyoshi oversaw the animation. This is the first of six episode scripts contributed by Godo. A relatively new writer at the time, he debuted in 1986, writing for the live-action Tsukiban Detective 3, but soon started working on anime, especially children's anime, like the long-running Anpan Man and Doraemon shows. I think his presence on staff is indicative of Tomino, Ueda, and Sunrise's determination to make victory appealing to younger viewers. Godo's most recent work for the studio at the time was on Zetai Muteki Raijino in 91, and its direct successor, Genki Bakuhatsu Ganbaruga, in 92. Both shows depict 4th and 5th graders operating heroic giant robots. Now, the recap. Shakti remembers, one last time, how all this came to pass. How Uso returned from Uig, determined to fight for Kasarelia. How Bespa bombers drove them from their homes. And how Uso lost the Shako. Marbet's core fighter was damaged, and the League Militaire convoy must remain in Kasarelia, right under the noses of Farah Griffin and her vicious yellow jackets, until it can be repaired. The whole crew sets to work. Even Haro helps out. Those not busy on the core fighter set improvised traps in the forest for any mobile suits who come after them, lashing beam rifles to trees, and tying their triggers to wires concealed in the canopy. When the convoy's apparent leader, Count Nyung, asks Uso about spare parts, the boy reveals that his simple farmhouse actually sits atop an underground bunker, stuffed with huge banks of computers, arcade games, even an ancient mobile suit simulator, all still functional. This is why my parents settled here, Uso explains. As they return to the convoy with the parts they needed, the ominous drone of Bespa rotors fills the blue sky. With Chronicle Asher and two more Zolo pilots to back him up, Ensign Sabat has returned. He demanded this chance for revenge. His failures in prior battles and the deaths of his subordinates are weighing heavily on his pride. Chronicle wants to search the area where they encountered the resistance before, but Sabat refuses to believe professional soldiers would linger in the area after being detected. His plan is brutal simplicity. Burn the whole valley to ash, 
kill everyone and everything in it, and force the League Militaire to break cover. Still, he gives Chronicle permission to look around for a little while, at least until the bombing starts. As Zolos skim the treetops, the older kids struggle to keep the younger ones quiet. Odello has to cover Susie's mouth to stop her wailing, and Shakti can only keep Carlman quiet by taking him for an aimless ride on her wapa. She is confronted by Chronicle, investigating the area on foot. He has spotted one of the tripwires strung between two trees, and demands an explanation. Thinking quickly, Shakti says it's a telephone line. The rumble of a distant explosion interrupts them before Chronicle can ask anything further. Sabat has begun bombing the forest. Chronicle barks an order to Shakti, take your wapa and flee for the mountains, and then dashes back to his Zolo. Chaos, fire, and death. Sabat's plan is working. Ready or not, the League convoy has to break cover and race for the relative safety of the mountains. Uso finds Shakti and tells her to stay with the convoy. Don't get too close, but follow them. It's her best chance of survival. And with the Shako at his disposal, he intends to make sure they all stay safe. He means to draw the Yellowjacket's attention away from the convoy. The League military fighters soon realize what he intends, and Marbet tries to talk him out of it, but there's not much they can do. Armed with a Gatling gun lifted from the back of one of the trucks, he leaps into the air and immediately encounters Chronicle's machine amid the smoke. All four Zolos pounce. A lucky burst from Uso's gun disables one, but the other three hem him in. It falls to Marbet, flying aggressively despite her wound, to rescue him. You can't just rely on firepower, she tells Uso. The warning is timely. His ammunition is exhausted, but ironic. Marbet's core fighter lacks the firepower to threaten these Bespa mobile suits. Suddenly, she spots yellow smoke, a signal from the convoy. They've managed to get the hangar portion ready to fly. Narrowly avoiding fire from the Zolos, she is able to link her core fighter with the hangar and rejoin the fight, now armed with one of the Victory Gundam's powerful beam rifles. A single shot shorts out one Zolo's beam rotor, and the stray particles from a near miss fry its electronics and leave it in the hands of merciless gravity. Only Chronicle and Sabat are left, but they've become separated. While the Zanskar prince puts a hole through Marbet's core fighter, sending it spiraling away out of the fight, Sabat pursues Uso among the trees. Spotting an opening, he lunges at the Shako, his beam saber alight. But the opening closes. Uso fires the Shako's shoulder cannon at point-blank range, melting both the beam saber and the hand that held it. Sabat's momentum carries him forward all the same, and the suddenly disarmed mobile suit falls directly onto the Shako's saber. The blade strikes the Zolo's cockpit, Precisely. Uso hears, for the first time, the strangled death scream of a man he has killed. Somewhere in the forest, Shakti trembles for him, and Karlman on her back sobs. Even the Shako's eyes go wide, almost seeming to well up with unshed tears. But there is no time at all to feel the weight of it. Chronicle, the cat eyes of his Zolo burning red, has found him. What follows can barely be called a battle. Chronicle easily disables the Shako, and Uso barely manages to escape. Shakti's recollections have come full circle. In the present, she takes Carlman to see Uso, hard at work helping the old man of the League Militaire tune up the new mobile suit called Victory. His mobile suit now, and he is its, for it seems to have possessed him. Do you have 
a way you want to start? We didn't really talk about order. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking of just starting with the classic. I think it's going to be a short episode. (laughs) Is this going to be it? The fabled short episode? No, absolutely not. What are you talking about? I looked at my notes this morning and was like, ah, can't we get a boring episode for once? Can't we get an episode where it's like, yeah, don't really have anything to say about this one? (laughs) I mean, I've got like four pages, but they all kind of boil down to a couple of bullet points. Most of this episode is fighting. Like, by volume, most of it is the fight. And just at least compared to the ones that we've been covering so far, like Victory Episode 4 is, by the standards of Victory, a pretty light episode. There might not be a ton that happens, but the topics that stood out to me, the things that I want to talk about, I hardly think it's going to be a couple declarative statements of our opinions and then we move on. (laughs) All right, here's a declarative statement. Flanders is definitely not a real dog. That's some other kind of creature in a dog suit. How does it sit on the WAPA like that? Why? That was incredibly strange. I don't know why anybody would animate. It's because it's not like a normal dog sitting position. It's kind of sitting on its hind legs, but then it's hanging on to the like railing of the WAPA. It's also a different WAPA from the others. The others... Someone sits more like they're on a recumbent bike. There's like a fan in front and a fan in back and you sit in the middle. Yeah, the others are like motorcycles. This one, picture like a Segway, but bigger. There's a disc and you stand on it and around the edge of the disc is like a railing so you don't fall off. You know in the Star Wars prequels when they're in the Senate and everybody has a little disc that like floats around? It's kind of like that. And this dog is hanging on to the railing and sitting not in the center with Shakti, but like sitting on the edge and hanging. It's very strange. I'm fairly certain the dog's haunches are not actually on the wapa. It's just like got its hind paws on the wapa and then it's got its four paws hooked around the the rail. No, it's <laughs> I don't know what that creature is. It's not a dog. But it is a good judge of character because it hates Chronicle. (laughs) (laughs) I thought Chronicle rather distinguished himself in this episode. This episode does a lot to kind of separate Chronicle from the rest of Zanskar, the rest of Bespa. But being the best of a bad field is not a high bar. (laughs) Sure. It does. I like the way you put that because it does separate him like physically from the rest of them, which is not the first time that's happened. In just four short episodes, Chronicle has been repeatedly separated from the rest of the Bespa crew and clearly is the outsider in this group. He's like not really part of them. They kind of resent him for his noble status and privileges as the brother of the queen and for not really being one of them. But here, Chronicle is so sympathetic to Shakti, like both in his voice, his mannerisms, his face to this poor girl in the wilderness and the plight of the illegal residents here in Casarelia. Yeah, I mean, he clearly cares in a way, but calling out, hey, girl, stop, I have a question for you while you're holding a gun is like, <laughs> you know, he's he's verbally being polite, but the threat of violence is there. Like, oh, absolutely. And as much as he has no interest in terrorizing this young girl... We heard what he said to Uso about illegal residents. Unlike Sabat, who's really interested in reprisals, he's interested in making them suffer for what they did to Gary. He talks about just burning the whole valley down, basically. 
I think Sabat's principal objective is to vindicate his sense of honor, which has been sullied by his failures in the past. Sabat wants victory over a worthy opponent. And I think to make the people who have sort of blackened the honor of their group suffer. I think there is a sadistic tone <laughs> to talking about burning the whole valley down. You know, Chronicle wants to investigate. Chronicle wants to be surgical about this. Sabat doesn't see the point. I think Sabat is more callous than sadistic. I think Sabat just doesn't value any of their lives or this valley or its ecosystem at all. Whereas Chronicle tells Shakti, you know, flee for the mountains. He, I think, would like her to be okay. Mm -hmm. He's just not willing to do anything about it. Right. He, he won't take any steps whatsoever to actually help her. But I like that you brought up honor as one of Sabat's big motivations, because it's becoming clear that one of the other distinguishing factors between Chronicle and the other members of this group who we've met so far, which is not very many, but he's not particularly hung up on his own self-importance, or at least he doesn't seem to be. It almost feels like they have to keep reminding him of that. He doesn't really bat an eye when they put him, a lieutenant, under the command of an ensign. That's fine. In the fight, when he's irritated with Sabat, it's because, like, where did Sabat go? Where's my cover fire? Like, mm -hmm. what? I cannot depend on this guy. What? <laughs> Every time Dupre tries to goad him, it's mostly about, like, oh, how embarrassing for you. How dishonorable to have lost this machine without you personally being injured. And Chronicle's like, well, of course I want to go recover this important test mobile suit. But like, I'm not going to gnash my teeth and stomp my feet over it. Like, I'm just going to stand here calmly and you will inevitably send me to go do the thing that it makes sense to do. See, this is what I meant when I said they have to keep reminding him about the honor thing. Dupre is always like, Chronicle, don't you feel embarrassed? Don't you feel like you have to go and, and vindicate your honor? And Chronicle's like, uh, yeah, sure, that thing, whatever. Definitely, my honor, very important to me. In the first episode, Dupre's sort of goading him seemed to get to him more. In this one, it really seems like he doesn't even notice. <laughs> we noticed a couple inconsistencies between the first episode and this one and how certain characters are treated. So Certain incongruities. Uh, I guess we'll see how the show continues to play out and whether they establish one or the other of these characterizations or some secret third thing. But I would say, broadly speaking, this episode made me like Chronicle more than I did when I started watching it. The snobbishness that we identified earlier on, I think, is still there, but it's also becoming clear that he is a more sympathetic character. I mean, he's the he's the sympathetic villain. He's there's the Garma. There's usually at least one. Garma or, like, Shalia Bull. Hmm. Or Ramba. Hmm. I, mean, I he's don't see the Shalia Bull connection He's aristocratic all. like Garma. But I didn't find Garma terribly sympathetic. Shaliabul and Rambo were like cool guys. <laughs> I guess Chronicle's not really cool, though. No. Hmm. He's older than Uso, but he doesn't have that like, I'm an uncle, I'm an old man, like I have wisdom to share with you, young child. It's true. Everyone is constantly pointing out how little experience Chronicle has. Right. He's almost like, okay, if Jared from Zeta <laughs> had been sympathetic. Such, yeah, if he had been sympathetic. <laughs> if he wasn't such a thing I can't say on the podcast, I think he might be in the Chronicle zone. Because he's positioned as a rival character to Uso, 
He doesn't quite have that indefinable charness. The je ne sais char, if you will. <laughs> I don't know if that makes any sense. Je ne sais quoi spal. <laughs> je ne sais quattro. We got there in the end. Je ne sais quattro bagina. I'm sure none of those are grammatical. I'm sure none of those make any sense in French. Oh, French is a fake language. Before we move on from talking about Chronicle, I did want to mention how funny I thought it was that in the scene before they leave to go look for the shackle, uh, the commander is there and doesn't say a word the whole scene. I assume the voice actor was not available. She's just there brandishing her riding crop, looking enigmatic. It kind of makes her look bad. The fact that she's just sort of standing there with her back turned to them while Dupre manipulates these various mobile suit pilots. It makes her seem like a figurehead. It makes her seem incompetent and like he's actually the one running the show. And I don't think that was the intention. She should have just not been there. I didn't think that it made her seem incompetent, but it did seem unnecessary to include her in the scene at all. They may have originally intended for her to have some kind of spoken role in the scene and then they had to change it. Uh, who knows? Or they thought, we have to show the pink-haired lady. <laughs> Everyone likes the pink-haired lady. While we're still talking about Bespa, one of the interactions that really stood out to me is when the Zolos are flying over the, the hillsides looking for Casarelia, and they have the, there's this back and forth between Sabat and Chronicle where Chronicle says, hey, we should look in the area around where we saw them before. And Sabat is like, oh, there's no way they would still be hanging around where a previous battle was. That's stupid. And Chronicle says, well, maybe if they were real soldiers, but these guys, this... And Sabat cuts him off before he can say it. And is like, hey, they're real soldiers. That is the party line. That is what we're saying. Stick to it. And this is revelatory on two levels. For Sabat, this is important because, again, he cares about honor. He cares about fighting and beating worthy opponents. And so for his personal sense of value, the idea that he's just like massacring civilians, wiping out these half-trained militia units and these old men who probably don't have any serious military experience, that would represent a pretty significant challenge to his like sense of personal worth. But I think it serves a very different purpose for BESPA as a political institution. There's kind of two branches to that as I see it. The first being that on an international political stage, casting themselves as fighting an army is much more justifiable <laughs> than casting themselves as an army of vastly superior <laughs> material and resources taking out little militia units. The other aspect is internal. We've talked before about moral injury. We've talked before, long time ago, about how dehumanizing propaganda is often used to make soldiers more willing to kill the enemy. Because it turns out most people really don't like killing other people, even when it feels necessary. And this is not easily overcome. And so during war, you see a lot of really horrible <laughs> propaganda and public speech, public writing, casting the enemy as different or inhuman or like pests because that makes the public and your soldiers more willing to do the things that you think are necessary to achieve your goal. Mm -hmm. Would their soldiers be so willing to reduce entire cities to rubble 
if they didn't really believe that the whole city was like riddled with rebel fighters, uh, you know, it, yeah, I think probably not. Some of them, sure. Uh, you know, there's always a few people who are creepily into it. And it's possible that Chronicle's social status kind of keeps him out of the propaganda in a way. He's not subjected to as much of it as other soldiers are. And so he doesn't default to it in these situations. He's looking around at what he's seen and experienced. And he's like, well, these are just random people. <laughs> like, what? They are an army. How dare you? From the vantage point of 2024, we're very accustomed to this rhetorical and legal and political game of defining and redefining who and what your enemies are in the wake of the 9-11 attacks at the beginning of the you know extended war on terror uh, and and forever wars in the Middle East there was a lot of legal wrangling and rhetorical and political argument over how to define the enemy are they soldiers are they civilians or this third category of unlawful enemy combatant and those definitional arguments had a lot of importance because they changed the legal regime that governs what your army is allowed to do to somebody. And in that context, I'm accustomed to seeing these arguments as like reducing people from the status of soldiers who have certain sets of rights to the status of unlawful combatant who enjoys practically no protections under the sort of international regime of uh, humanitarian law. But it can be done the other way. And sometimes both ways. I, you know, it is not uncommon for a government to, out of political expediency, to argue that they are unlawful enemy combatants when that suits their needs, and then to turn around and argue that they are, in fact, trained soldiers in a military when that suits their needs. You know, far be it for me to ever claim governments are not hypocritical. <laughs> And in a way, Bespa claiming the right to define the legal status of their enemies is itself an imposition of their power, of the power of Zanskar over the people of Earth. Like in the international law of war, of armed conflict, there, there's a, a set of things that establish whether someone is a soldier or not, um, whether something is a real army or not. But Bespa doesn't care about those things. They don't care about the facts on the ground. They have identified the legal and political framework uh, that best suits their realpolitik goals here. The organizations that we tend to entrust in making those kinds of calls and those kinds of decisions don't usually do that while the thing is happening. That is something that happens after everything is over. We have heard mention of the Earth Federation and we've heard mention of other colonies, but you know, unless we see a news broadcast where this is being debated somewhere else in the Earth sphere, we don't really know how what's happening here is being perceived elsewhere or talked about elsewhere. And so a party in a conflict is always free to create their own definitions <laughs> in the moment. There are probably also in the moment counter arguments. We're just not seeing them. As for those real soldiers on the other side, this episode, I think, also raised the League Militaire soldiers in my esteem. All these old guys are, quite uncharacteristically for Gundam, very willing to put themselves out there, put themselves at risk, and like take an active role in all of this. They also, I think, quite clearly don't want Uso to get involved. They eventually bow to the necessity of it once he uh, demonstrates himself to be eager and competent, but they do sort of say, like, hey, kid, 
don't take that mobile suit and go try to distract them. We can't stop you, and we really do actually need you to do that, but please don't. Marbet in particular, first trying Love to tell Marbet. him not to go. I just have like a heart around a bunch <laughs> of my Marbet comments in here, but she clearly has some training as a pilot and some experience. She's a heck of a flyer, <laughs> which they demonstrate incredibly in this episode. But first she tries to talk him out of the mobile suit. Like, you've been lucky so far, but your luck can't hold forever and you do not know what you're doing. And then once it's clear she has not talked him out, she rushes out there to help him. Several of the old guys are worried about her injury. And again, the animation does a great job of showing, like, she has to keep that leg stiff. She can't bend it. Uh, she's, like, levering herself up into the cockpit. Well, and uh, it's a leg injury, which is so much more dangerous in this context, I think. I'm remembering stuff you researched in previous seasons about how, like, G-forces affect the flow of blood in your body. And, she's, and like, it pushes the blood into your legs. She even comments that she's not wearing a suit, and presumably the suit would have applied pressure to her legs to help with that, to help counteract the G-forces. And she got in without it. She was in too much of a hurry. Right. So... What she's doing is really dangerous. And the old guys keep telling her to be careful. You know, when she's driving one of the trucks, when she gets into the uh, core fighter. And her response is kind of like, well, we don't have any other options. <laughs> so is it bad for me? Yeah, but I still have to go. I realized watching this that we made a mistake with Marbet when we first looked at her. We identified Marbet as a Matilda type. And while she looks superficially like a Matilda type, she is not. Marbet is a Ryu Jose. Uh. <laughs> Marbet is Ryu Jose, but make him hot, tall Takarazuka woman. With regards to the rest of the League military guys, this felt like the episode where they were like, okay, we have to tell everybody every, everyone's names. <laughs> everyone's names. At this point, we have to, we can't have everybody saying like, glasses and mustache guy, oldest guy, mustache <laughs> but no glasses guy. Otis, Romero, the blonde one is Warren. We finally get a name for the blonde kid in the suit. There is a kind of childishness to the old guys. You never see middle-aged people. You never see people in the prime of their life with this kind of childishness, but the old guys are allowed to exhibit it. This is, uh, I don't know if it's a saying in Japanese culture, but I've certainly heard in the U.S. people talk about old age as a second childhood, that you kind of revert to being largely dependent on people. And that there is a certain childishness associated with old age sometimes. You mentioned that none of these guys would have had much combat experience, but I, I always lose track of the timeline. Are any of them old enough? I think we counted this out. Some of the oldest of them might have been young children when the one-year war happened. Yes, I think some people in our chat, I think, actually did the numbers on this. And some of the oldest ones would have been around Al's age during the one-year war. Potentially old enough to have been combatants during the Zeta, double Zeta, Shars counterattack era. Though, like, every one of those conflicts was on such a small scale that the chances of any individual soldier being involved in them, if these guys were even in the military, is really tiny. Right. But I do wonder, you know, having hero-worshipped Amuro or having, having that memory of the war and this kind of being their chance to be the heroes mm -hmm. that they remember from their childhoods. Uh, in particular, when the oldest of the guys is like guiding Marbet out, which this uh, this episode is full of references to 
obsolete technology, <laughs> but you know, he might have just been doing that instinctively. But it's clearly something that nobody needs anybody to do anymore. It's like you were just doing that because you wanted to look cool. Uh, yeah, that was very funny. And I haven't been that old. I hope someday to be. But when you're young and you don't really have a concept of death, you have this fearlessness. And I wonder if the idea with these old guys is they're so old that they're looking at death all the time and don't really fear it. It's hard for me to imagine that's true for all of them, maybe for the oldest of them, but I guess it depends on life expectancy. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, not that they're like eager to die or anything. No, but just, like, but just uh, having recaptured... an awareness, having a constant awareness of your own mortality. like <laughs> mm -hmm. Or having lived so long that you recapture that fearlessness of youth. Despite their reluctance to ask too much of Uso or Shakti, both of these Casarelia kids do that sounds like a 90s supergroup. The Casarelia Kids. Is that our next t-shirt? <laughs> <laughs> Bravo and the Orphans becomes the Casarelia Kids. Anyway, <laughs> despite their unwillingness to ask much of the Casarelia Kids, Uso and Shakti do eventually get drawn in and, and sucked into the League Militaire's operations, even though they themselves are reluctant to commit beyond a certain point. It does seem like at the beginning of this episode, both of them really want to see the League Militaire safely away, and then go back to their quiet hiding life in Casarelia. It is only the exigencies of battle that make that impossible, because at the end, they're, they're separated from each other. Uso is lost somewhere in the wilderness with no mobile suit, and Shakti, despite not wanting to get on the camion, not wanting to get involved, decides that the best thing she can do, her best hope of finding Uso again, is to stay with League Militaire until Marbet manages to find him. See, I think at this point, Uso does want to be involved. He just doesn't want it to happen in Casarelia. Mm. But he does tell Shakti, don't get on the truck, just follow them. So I think that is because he knows that the camion itself will be a target. If she's on the truck, she's actually in more danger than if she's just following a safe distance behind. Hmm. I just found it very curious the ways in which each of them are willing to be involved, willing to help or not, the risks that they are willing to put up with and the ones that bother them. Shakti was willing to give first aid to Marbet. We know she's given food to this group on the camion. She's happy to help with Carlman. But she doesn't want to go with them. She doesn't want them to stay. She reacts to them being there much the way Uso reacted to Marbet the first time they met her. Like, your being here is really dangerous for us and you need to leave. In Shakti's narration at the beginning of this episode, she does say that Uso is determined to fight in Casarelia, that he wants to, like, defend their home. And that to me does not suggest somebody who wants to go off with the League Militaire and join their traveling circus of combat. But he does express then regret at this idea later, when he says something about, oh, I guess there's no helping it. There's going to be fighting here in Casarelia now. But you know, we're so used to these uh, narrations being meant to like illuminate things for us as the audience, but maybe it's not. Maybe, maybe these instances, these insights into Shakti's thoughts are not meant to be some omniscient voice coming out of her mouth, but are actually Shakti. And... Her perceptions of Uso versus his perceptions of himself are different. 
I'm glad you raised that possibility. Shakti's line about Uso wanting to stay and protect Casarelia is in the same breath as when she says that, oh, I guess Katagina doesn't like babies, or I guess Katagina hates babies. Yeah, I was really surprised by that line because I'm not fluent, but in my experience, kirai, the word she uses for to hate, is like a pretty strong word and not used all that frequently. Like often people would say, oh, she doesn't much like babies. She doesn't seem to really like babies. Like ski janai? Yeah. Whereas instead to be like, oh, she hates babies. I'm like, she just handed the baby to someone else. It's not her <laughs> baby. Like Shakti is just getting a rancid baby hating vibe off of Katagina. That's all it is. She has a strange empathy for the earth and she can tell these things. As I already noted previously, there are moments that seem to be giving us Shakti's perspective on events. And she's clearly kind of jealous of and wary of Katagina or like resents Katagina. And so some of her uh, perceptions about Katagina, I don't think are quite like accurate to what's happening. Mm. <laughs> uh, they're based off of this feeling of enmity <laughs> that Shakti has. <laughs> but this is only one part of this episode's alienation of Katagina. This episode does a lot to subtly separate her from the rest of the group. And that's done both by other people and by herself. In the early part of the episode, when everybody is running hither and yon, working hard to prepare the, the defense of Casarelia and the escape of the, the League Militaire convoy, Katagina, her only action here really is to foist her responsibility for Karlman onto Shakti. We're told that Shakti has given them food. We see Shakti with the baby. Warren and Odello and Uso and Susie are all, even Haro, are all helping set up the trap. Everybody's working and contributing. Katagina is the only one who refuses to participate in the shared labor. Later on, she spends a lot of the time in this episode just sort of like sitting in the back seat of the camion with her head against the window. She keeps her distance. She remains aloof. When Uso wants her to ride on the Wapa with him, she's like, no. He asks her twice even. And she's not walking with Odello and Warren. She's not keeping company with anybody else in particular. I did wonder if she can tell Uso has a crush and she's trying not to encourage him. Mm -hmm. Probably. He is not being subtle about it. He blushes every other time she looks at him. He is down catastrophic. But Can we I don't feel comfortable saying that a 14-year-old or 13-year-old is down catastrophic. <laughs> I've been a 13-year-old boy. All I'm right, prepared I, to say he's down catastrophic. All right. I, I cede to your expertise. But Uso also, both Shakti and Uso, have significant moments in this episode where they look at Katagina and they try to figure out what she's thinking. She's a cipher for them. Shakti has her Katagina must hate babies line. Uso has his whole like, she's looking at me. It doesn't seem like she approves of what I'm doing, but I don't think she's afraid of me either. I was very curious about that line and listened to it very closely in Japanese. And I did initially wonder if he meant afraid for rather than afraid of. However, after listening to it again multiple times, I'm pretty sure he does mean afraid of, which felt odd in the moment. But I realized this is in contrast to Shakti because Shakti when he's in the mobile suit, she is afraid of him and of what he's doing. Katagina's not afraid of him, even when he's in the mobile suit, even when he's fighting in this like 
huge, scary, monstrous piece of war machinery. She may not think that it's particularly admirable or special, but she doesn't feel fear of him. I think Shakti does. After his first kill, she does think, Uso, don't die out there. But that's the second thing she thinks. The first thing is, Uso, what are you doing? It's not that she's afraid of what Uso might do, say, to her. She's not afraid for her own sake, but she is afraid of what Uso will do to Uso. She's horrified by this. She describes it at the end of the episode as him being possessed by this machine, like like a demonic possession. I was so interested in that line because she says toritskare, which can mean to be to be possessed by, but it can also mean to be obsessed with. It's a fun little ambiguity. Mm, okay. But then after she said that, the, we see a cut that's just the Gundam, and it seems almost as if it's moving on its own. It like looks up, its eyes flash, and there's a like a burst of green fire from one of the eyes. And in that moment, it really does feel like an entity, a spirit, a demon. And thinking over that line is when I realized that more, I think, than any other of these like main series Gundam protagonists, more than in First Gundam, more than in Zeta, more than in Double Zeta, Uso doesn't show his fear or his horror to anyone. He expresses it inside the mobile suit where no one can see or hear him. But the moment he leaves, it's all cheery, like, oh, I just did my best, shrug, like, hurry, let's take care of the things that need doing. Like, I'm fine. I'm just a normal kid. <laughs> Carlman expresses those feelings for him. When Uso makes his first, when he kills Sabat, when he makes his first definite, direct, and unambiguous kill, the sound design here is doing a ton of lifting. Sabat has his death scream. Uso can hear it. He's confused why he can hear it, because it's not coming across the radio. He's just, he's feeling it. He's new typing, probably. And then... While Uso is reacting in horror, Karlman starts crying. And Karlman's sobbing runs over the rest of this little scene. The timing, so perfect. And I do think that if Shakti knew how Uso really felt in these moments, she wouldn't be so concerned about what the fighting is. I mean, she'd still be worried about what the fighting was doing to him because clearly it is traumatic. But I hear this edge in Shakti's concern that's almost like she's worried he likes it. She's worried he likes fighting and likes killing, and that really freaks her out. And if she knew that that was really not the case, that particular worry at least would go away. But Uso doesn't share that with anyone. Well, Uso is, he's 13. He is on the verge of developing an adult male body. He is on the verge of like realizing that physical power and that power can be intoxicating when you first feel it, that capacity for violence, for inflicting your will on the world. And the Gundam has always represented that power, that power of the adult body, that power that children and teenagers especially long for. Because they feel powerless. And often they have this very pure, unalloyed, simplistic, childish view of the world, which sees all of these horrors, all of these bad things happening, and longs, yearns for the power to stop them. And then to be given that power overnight in the form of a mobile suit that just drops into your lap. She should be scared of him. We all should be. 
But I guess what's most interesting to me is the contrast he forms to other Gundam protagonists that, like, maybe we just haven't gotten deep enough into the story yet. Maybe after they inevitably leave Casarelia and he's no longer fighting to protect his home specifically, the pressure of it will get to him or he'll resent it or or something along those lines. But in even though he has Shakti, he feels so isolated and also kind of repressed. Camille also didn't have a lot of, like, friends, a strong sort of peer group around him in Zeta. But Camille was very vocal about the his negative feelings and how he felt about his situation. And Uso isn't. And is that cultural? Is that generational? Is that just random chance? That's just a different personality to put in the Gundam? Uh, I don't know. But... Uh, well, one of the explanations for why Uso is called Uso, why his name is falsehood, deception, lie, is because there are no children like him. He's almost impossibly good, at least as a facade. I mean, in this episode, we see that like not only is Uso like a paragliding, mobile suit repelling, athletic phenomenon, but he's also a like self-taught polymath. And he knows all this stuff about mobile suits because he just like has a simulator in his basement that he plays around on all the time and studies out of the databanks. Whatever his emotional state, whatever his emotional capacities, his physical and mental capacities are incredible. Now you're making him sound like some sort of secret government experiment. But before we get to that, <laughs> you had set up Katajita as this cipher for the characters Uso thinks that when she looks at him, he doesn't see approval or admiration, but he also doesn't see fear. I think she mostly looks sad. I think she looks traumatized. And then we get another close-up of Katagina's face after Odello has told Shakti, like, oh, go get in the camion, let's go. And she's like, no, I'm not going with you. Katagina is the one who asks her why, and she says, I don't really want to leave Casarelia. I'll be okay here on my own. And then we get a close-up of Katagina's face, and I think we see both impressed and frightened. <laughs> I think we see the exact opposite of what Uso thinks he saw for himself. That Katagina on some level like admires this attitude that Shakti has voiced, but it also terrifies her a bit. Well, she's just sort of being carried along with everything that's happening. And I think she really admires and resents and fears Shakti's independence. And... Uso has pointed out that Katagina has voiced some negative opinions about illegal Earth residents before. She is maybe reevaluating some of that in light of seeing how much Shakti cares for her home, how determined Shakti is to stay, even in the face of everything that's happening. You know, Katagina is not insisting on staying in Uig. <laughs> like, I wonder if something about the impression Shakti is making is challenging. Katagina's previous perceptions of illegal Earth residents. Speaking of Katagina changing her mind on things, this episode finally brings the flashback to its end. The serpent has bitten its own tail and we're back where we started, which presents us with a pretty significant incongruity. And that's that in episode one, when Katagina beholds the wasteland that used to be Uig, she says, I'm glad they bombed Uig. Everyone in the special district, and by the special district, I think she just means Uig. As we talked about last week, it's not like a special quarter within Uig. I'm glad it was bombed. Everyone there was corrupt. Which is a really strong line. Like, dang, Katagina, what happened to make you feel that way? 
And we assume that in the course of this flashback, we're going to see what happened to make her feel that way. Now we see her argue with her dad, and she takes pretty much the polar opposite position, that the bombing of Uig is a bad thing, that the massacre of these people is a bad thing. So we assume that something had to have happened between that argument and the later statement to change her mind, but the only things that have happened to her in that time is that she nearly got killed by Bespa a couple of times. So what explains the turnaround? The only explanation I can think of, and in my opinion, this is the show asking a little too much of us and not doing enough uh, to explain on its own, but that she is thinking specifically of her father and people like him who cut deals to save themselves, even though it meant selling out the rest of the city, which the whole city got destroyed, like not just those bad people. As you pointed out, like that attitude is counter to what she expressed earlier. But when she talks about the corruption, I assume she means her dad. This is the other moment I was alluding to when I said we get some drastically different characterization between the first episode and this one. Kind of remains to be seen whether she is kind of a callous ideologue or just a spoiled rich girl who's playing at being a rebel. I don't know. Maybe we'll get more clarity on this as the show goes forward. This episode, at least, offers very little in the way of interiority for Katagina. It's just everybody else trying to figure out what she's thinking and clearly struggling to do so. Before we move on from Katagina and Shakti, I want to bring up something that is becoming a clear Tomino pattern, uh, which is this kind of like dichotomy of women. You could use a lot of different terms for this. I'm not going to use the most common one, uh, but for our purposes, I was thinking housewife career woman. <laughs> a lot of Tomino's work seems to almost deify good mothers and vilify bad ones, but the women who are objects of sexual desire, the women who the protagonist is attracted to, are never like mom material types. They're never maternal. They're never nurturing. They're career women. They often outright express no interest whatsoever in being nurturing, in having that role. See, Katagina must hate babies. Think about how Amuro is really never into Frabo. Like, he gets a little jealous at one point, but it's not enough to sort of overcome the rest of it. His attraction is to Matilda, the archetypical career woman of First Gundam. In Zeta, Camille's not really interested in Fa until she starts fighting too. Until she kind of gives up trying to nurture him. Fa is such an interesting outlier in the classic of the Tomino woman. She's not already in one of the two types. She's at the crossroads and kind of tries to do both. She's both the action girl who can be desired and the caretaker that you need. And then in Double Zeta, Lena is there to be the caretaker. There's kind of an attraction to Haman before she goes all murdery. Um, <laughs> Rue is irresponsible and kind of callous. Like, who else does he fall for? He falls for a lot of girls. <laughs> it's almost like Pokemon, where you have the, uh, the base form, which is, as teenagers, the action girl, the Sela, and the childhood friend, the Frabo. When they become adults, they sort of branch into additional categories. There is the good mother and the bad mother. There is the the good heroic action girl. And then there is the, like the Shima, the fallen woman type. I'll talk about this more in my research this week, so this is very well-timed. 
but there is this like very strong conservative thread in Japanese culture that when a woman marries, she quote unquote retires from being a woman. And she's not supposed to worry about her appearance. She's not supposed to dress cute or attractive or even wear makeup or really like have a life outside of her family and family home. That once she's married, she's no longer supposed to be an object of desire. She's a caretaker. And a like deep suspicion and a sense almost of un-Japanese-ness for women who want to continue to be attractive and continue to spend time and energy and money on themselves in that way after they become wives and mothers. What I think makes Tomino's work so compelling here is that it's very clear that he has strong feelings about these different types of women, and yet those feelings are not consistent. They don't need to be. We have ambiguous feelings about things all the time. And in a society which imposes so much pressure on women and imposes very strong but contradictory notions of womanhood and desire and the relationships between men and women and families, complicated, ambiguous, and contradictory feelings as a result of that are perfectly natural. Imagine the political cartoon, a massive hydraulic-driven press labeled society, squishing down on a block labeled concept of womanhood, and as it crushes the block, little weird bits squish out the sides. That's Tomino, with the little weird bits squishing out the sides, splattering all over the wall. There's certainly nuance there, but ultimately this is an issue on which I think Tomino is quite regressive. He cannot conceive of a working woman who is a good mother. And he cannot conceive of a family in which the mom does what dads are often characterized as doing, which is basically never being there, but the dad is the present one, as not doing, like, horrific harm to children. He just, like, cannot wrap his head around a kid growing up to be okay if their mom wasn't, like, 100% around all the time which is like the moral panic we talked about uh, two weeks ago with otaku and all of this concern that like, oh, this is because kids are not don't have proper relationships with their mothers, like these maladapted, unsociable young people. And that takes me all the way back to season two and the research we did on the popular conception of autism in the 80s. And this idea, I think it was like the fridge mother theory or something like that, that children became autistic later in life because their mothers were insufficiently loving. That does seem to have been the conception that Tomino was working from, at least in the Zeta era. So this, he's definitely got a hang up about mothers and motherhood. Also, in the last few years, he's become really obsessed with babies. This was not a thing in First Gundam Zeta or Double Zeta, but starting from the Beltorchka's children era, and then especially in F91 and now in Victory, there's clearly something he really wants to get at with all of these babies he keeps putting into the show. I don't quite feel ready to speculate about that, but I will keep it in mind going forward. Speaking of Tomino and babies, by the way, just a quick anecdote. The like backpack that Shakti makes to hold Karlman, which is like just some cord wrapped around him into this like 
I mean, in the same way, a lot of people use different kinds of wraps to carry babies against their body. But this one, instead of being a larger piece of fabric, is a, a thinner, I think it's probably a kumihimo, which is a, a piece of fabric like made into a maybe two inch wide ribbon that you use to tie various parts of the kimono up. At one point, Okea Akira, who's a, one of the scriptwriters for Victory, was asked like, oh, you know, the staff of Victory was mostly very young. Tomino himself getting older, was there any kind of a generation gap? And he mentions this specific thing because apparently Tomino had like written this into the script and nobody, none of the young artists knew what it was or how it worked. But for Tomino, this was just like an everyday part of life when he was growing up. And so he had to explain to them how it worked. And if you cast your minds way, way back to when I uh, talked a bit about sort of like the concept of children and childhood and how that has changed in the world and in Japan specifically over time, one of the points that was made is in various parts of Japanese history, really for most of it before like the post-war period, a lot of childcare was just done by older children. It wasn't necessarily a mom carting around a baby all day. It was the oldest of the kids who was like old enough to look after a baby, but not quite old enough to do other work. Like, and it would cycle. So, someone Shakti's age taking care of a baby would have been very normal. The generation gap, though, I feel like maybe connects to the cloth diapers as well, because that gets commented on. And then the way all the characters react to and talk about the bunker, about the old technology, the sort of like bemused expressions and sort of like smiling and laughing at this cool old stuff that who, who would have thought it would be here, but made me wonder a lot about whether in the 90s there was this growing sense of nostalgia for the 70s and 80s would not be an uncommon reaction to deteriorating material conditions for people to sort of look back even just a decade or a generation and go like, ah, oh, the good old days. <laughs> but it does feel funny to see that kind of nostalgia portrayed in a science fiction show. <laughs> Should we talk some more about the bunker? Bunker raises a lot of questions. Right? Like... And I, I think bunker is exactly the right term because it's carved into the cliff. It's carved into a stone wall, down a staircase, into a basement. It's all enclosed in stone. It's still running after however many years with presumably very little upkeep from Uso. Like maybe there's a generator he needs to feed or something, but probably not. I imagine there's a certain amount of maintenance to keep it all running, but... Uso mentions that his father is the one who collected all the parts. His father has taught him about computers. So clearly his father, uh, very tech savvy, possibly worked in computer technology and so knows how to do all these things. It feels like this is like a continuity bunker. This was established so that these records would survive even if something terrible happened to like the government that built it. Right, because it's out in the country, it's away from any like population centers. Although, as you pointed out before, we do know there used to be something here. There used to be like a town or something nearby, because there are ruins. I also wondered, since Uso says that his parents chose to live here because of the bunker, 
if they were people who simply refused to leave, they may have been involved in this facility in some way or at least known about it. It's hard to imagine they found it by accident, (laughs) (laughs) that they just happened to be looking around the valley and go, huh, what's this door in a stone wall? Yeah, this is definitely one of those where like, the bunker is interesting. It reveals a lot of stuff about Uso's life and how he came to have the capabilities he does. But then you also kind of go like, hey, I actually have a lot of questions about your parents, Uso. Right? Who is your daddy and what does he do? And putting a, like, farmhouse over the entry to your secret military bunker feels very uh, much like a thing a government would do. <laughs> like, oh, here's just this inconspicuous farmhouse. Mm-hmm. Nothing to see here, folks. Mm-hmm. That his father was so good with computers. They show some different machinery in the barn before they go down into the bunker. I don't know if this is the technical term for it, but one of them looks like a drill press, which my only experience of is an electronics class I took in middle school. And one of the things we had to do was make our own little circuit boards. And we used Uh. the drill press to put holes in the boards before we wired them. So I've used one of those. Well, and with that being right next to the the cabinet full of computer chips, mm-hmm. probably there's some some very like hands-on uh, do-it-yourself repairs and maintenance being done here. I thought the cabinet of computer chips was so funny. It's like when I was growing up, my parents had a cabinet in the garage that had screws in it of various different sizes and nails because you never know when you might need a nail of a particular size. But Uso's dad just has a cabinet full of different kinds of computer chips. I mean, my dad would have that cabinet. I mean, probably not not all computer chips, but like various computer parts. Absolutely, my dad would do that. But the reactions of the old guys, this sort of, again, amused shock that so many really old parts have been sort of safeguarded and stored, again, maybe points to the nostalgia factor that people are starting to get interested in quote-unquote obsolete technology and in trying to preserve that and keep it working, even as what is top of the line, what is cutting edge, gets farther and farther ahead. And then he's got the simulator and some arcade machines down in the bunker as well. The simulator, I think, explains why he knows stuff about mobile suits. The simulator is called, like, Bondi Battlemaster, I looked it up. I couldn't find any references to an actual Bondi Battlemaster arcade cabinet, though it wouldn't surprise me if such a thing existed. Those kinds of games can be very poorly documented. There was also one in that room called something like Cosmo Amba. Cosmo Amber. Amber. So I looked this one up and had a little bit more success. Thank you for asking about it. (laughs) As a general rule, there are a couple of places that I've found to be pretty reliable sources for identifying Gundam names, sort of... You know, if you check here and you find something, there's a good chance that's what it is. Anyway, Cosmo Amber is the name of a racehorse who won a couple of important races in the late 80s. And we know they've referenced racehorses before. I'm pretty sure the the Lebo or Rebo colony that Al lived on was named for a racehorse. (laughs) I've been meaning to bring this up for multiple episodes now. Actually, ever since the first moment of the first episode, excluding the intro narration. And it's this recurring theme of war itself as an environmental catastrophe. Yes. I made a special note in here that I wanted to talk about the really vivid pictures of destruction of the forest and of the burnt out sections from previous fights, of the flocks of birds flying away. 
and other Gundam shows have done this as well, but it feels like this one is doing it more, really wants to highlight that war is not merely a human catastrophe. It's also an environmental one. What is the very first image that appears in the show proper? After the intro narration ends, what is the first image of episode one? A tall tree, perhaps a hundred years old, falling over after it gets exploded. There is one line from Sabat that in the English subtitles is a bit confusing, and it's where he's uh, fighting Uso and he says something like, I'm not going to let some empty test suit beat me. And at first blush, you know there's somebody in it. What does he mean by calling it empty? It's the kind of line that immediately jumps out to you as like, this translation is not adequately conveying the original text. Our thanks to patron Mosquitoes, who helped us transcribe this line because we both listened to it multiple times and could not make out all of the syllables. Uh, what they believe he's saying is, Waki ga gara aki no testoki nanzo, which is not a complete sentence, which is very Tomino, but is basically a test mobile suit that's leaving its like weak spots or its blind spots wide open that is uh, poorly defended, basically. I thought that whoever did the subtitles might have been trying for, like in English, sometimes we describe a person as a stuffed shirt or an empty suit, that they're sort of like useless. <laughs> they're just there to take up space. They don't do anything. And so I thought he might mean empty in that way. Like clearly there's somebody piloting it, but they also clearly don't really know what they're doing. I, uh, I don't think they quite pulled it off. And now the second part of Nina's research on Japanese society in the early part of the lost decade. This one focusing on the roles of women in society. Welcome to my attempt to provide an overview on women in Japanese society in the early 1990s the public discourse around them, major issues shaping their lives, and what being part of the Shinjin-rui, or new breed, meant for young women of this generation. Like any overview, it's going to leave gaps, and mostly I'll be discussing broad trends, which tend to gloss over a great diversity of lived experience. For example, all of my sources were heteronormative and cisnormative. In the chapters and articles I read, no mention was made of lesbian women or trans women. There was no mention of disability or of specific issues affecting ethnic minorities, and little about the elderly. My sources, and it seems the discourse at the time, were also overwhelmingly focused on middle-class women. Although middle-class can be difficult to define and different studies will use different definitions, by most measures, there was a huge expansion of Japan's middle class from the 1970s until 1990, driven by rising wages and improvements to standard of living over the same period. Income distribution in 1980s Japan was among the most equitable in the world. Depending on how it's defined, middle-class households were the majority, or the single largest class group at that time. And if your household were not middle-class just yet, when the economy was strong, you probably felt like it could be. This created what is called the all-inclusionary middle-class mass phenomenon, which dovetails with a particular way of thinking about Japan that Sugimoto Yoshio describes as a monocultural model. It's what you see in a lot of writing about Japan for foreign audiences, 
the image of a single, homogenous culture and ethnicity living in uniquely Japanese, classless, egalitarian harmony. This isn't just an image for foreigners, though. It is also how many Japanese people are taught to think of and describe their own country. And so, regardless of changing economic conditions, most Japanese people regard themselves as middle class, and middle class life and values go on to shape public discourse, governance, even law. Marriage is a prime example. In the Meiji period, certain middle and upper class marriage customs were reified as law. A family had a single heir, usually but not always the eldest son. The heir was in turn responsible for caring for his parents as they got older, and by the heir I really mean his wife. Families were very hierarchical, and a new daughter-in-law was in the lowest position. She was responsible for management of the household and children, and production of the next heir. Unless a woman's family adopted her husband, done when a family had no sons or sometimes for business inheritance reasons, her name was removed from the family register of her birth family and added to that of her husband. Some changes were made to marriage laws after World War II. For instance, all children could inherit, not a single heir, and all of them would have legal responsibility to care for their aging parents. If and when a daughter married out of her birth family, she lost her inheritance rights, but at the same time was no longer legally responsible for the care of her parents. Despite the changes, elder care obligations still fell most heavily on eldest sons, making them less appealing as spouses. As a woman, not only would you have to look after your in-laws, but there was no longer any compensatory economic advantage to marrying the eldest son. In fact, one source described this dynamic as part of the appeal of the nuclear salaryman life. One's in-laws probably lived far away, removing a young wife from under the thumb of a stereotypically domineering mother-in-law, and limiting her care responsibilities to the two-generation nuclear family. Family structures and marriage expectations had varied widely depending on region, class, and so on. Women whose families ran a business or farm and women in blue-collar families had always had to balance work and family responsibilities, but the focus on mothering and domesticity as a wife's work established middle and upper-class norms as the ideal. Particularly prominent in the public discourse of the early 90s were young, unmarried, working women. In her interviews with such women circa 1993, Nancy Rosenberger describes this group as socially and psychologically unmoored. She quotes a 27-year-old office lady's response to a magazine survey that same year. We don't understand love, but it's not that we don't know it. We are not amateurs at work, but we can't be called pros. There are times when we ourselves can be seen, but still times when people don't see them. 27 is a season when we are neither here nor there. We live in a free age, but sometimes we get swallowed up by the waves of that freedom and lose sight of everything. I would like to find a silhouette of the future, at least until 30. Now one more time, I want to face this strange age. From 2024, that just sounds like being a 20-something. But at the time, these women had no roadmap. Their lives were already markedly different from those their mothers had led. So who would they look to for an image of the future? Across all the sources I read, the emotion that comes through strongest is ambivalence. In one, there was no consensus on what constitutes a good life for women, with opinion more or less evenly divided between women who wanted to stop working when they married, stop working temporarily but eventually return, or continue to work throughout. 
In another, young women more or less agreed that the ideal was a threefold life with career, marriage, and children. But the possibility of achieving such a life was regarded with well-founded skepticism. What were the changing conditions that inspired them to want a different kind of life than they'd seen their mothers lead? And what obstacles remained in their path? From 1960 to 1990, the percentage of college-aged women who enrolled in two- and four-year college programs increased steadily and reached parity with men. In fact, in 1990, women's enrollment slightly exceeded that of men, 37.4% versus 35.2%. And, likely thanks in part to the early 90s labor shortage, by the end of 1991, women graduating from four-year college programs were just as likely as men to find a job immediately after graduation. The percentage of women aged 15 and older who participated in the labor force also increased, from 45.7% in 1975 to just over 50% in 1990. Yet by 1992, the recession was already hurting this progress, and, quote, one large placement firm reported 2.2 job openings for each male graduate, but less than one for each female graduate. Over a third of working women were non-regular employees, which means the positions were part-time, temporary, or contract, a percentage that has increased ever since. While the share of men in non-regular employment has also grown, it is still comparatively low. For my own research, I've been reading this uh, 1990s-era anthropological study of a Japanese advertising agency, because that's the sort of riveting stuff you read when you're watching shows about giant robots. And uh, in it, the author makes quite clear that in Japan and at the time, there was an extremely strong stigma against irregular workers. That if you fell out of the regular working pool or didn't manage to get into it in the first place, it was very, very hard to get back into it. Companies had a strong preference for hiring new graduates right out of college. And uh, if you didn't fit that profile, even if you were an experienced employee looking just to change companies or make a slight change in your career, it was incredibly hard to do that. As for women's representation in government, in March of 1988, women held seven of 506 seats in the lower house and 22 of 251 seats in the upper house of Japan's national diet. By July 1992, this had increased to 14 and 38 respectively, an increase but still far from representative, and the numbers were worse at the prefectural and municipal levels. At the same time, women made up only 6% of judges, 2.8% of prosecutors, and 6.1% of lawyers. The Equal Employment Opportunity Law, or EEOL, passed in 1989, though not in force until 1995, was touted by many as a sign of progress for women's rights in Japan, theoretically securing women equal opportunity for recruitment and promotion. But even beyond the lack of an enforcement mechanism, there are no punishments or penalties for employers who violate the law. The kinds of protections it offers and women's experiences in the workplace reveal deep-seated assumptions about the proper course of a woman's life. In 1989, the Tokyo Metropolitan Government described how these new mothers skillfully balance part-time work, hobbies, and family life. The new mother is a versatile cook and an able parent. She also enjoys socializing with friends from various outside activities a fiction that Barbara Maloney, writing about the EEOL and its effect on gender discourse, likens to June Cleaver wearing her pearls while she cleans the house. 
I know many of you don't know who June Cleaver is, but if you look up the character, it will make sense. A fiction it may be, but it reveals a number of assumptions about gendered activity and behavior, which then shaped contemporary discourse on women in the labor force and womanhood generally. One of these is that the public sphere, including work, is inherently masculine and male-dominated, while the private sphere, or the home, is inherently feminine. The care and condition of the home and the rearing of children were entirely a wife's responsibility, and middle-class motherhood was assumed to be totally incompatible with full-time work. Hence the focus on part-time jobs, minimizing conflict between these two spheres of life. Frankly, middle-class motherhood was incompatible with a mother working full-time, but the reasons for this were structural. The long hours men were expected to work, plus frequent business travel, a tax system that was preferential to single-income households and punitive to dual-income ones, and an early childhood and kindergarten education system that assumed participation from a full-time mother for volunteering at school events, availability for meetings with teachers, and so on. My point being, it was a choice on the part of the government and business interests to promote the concept of middle-class motherhood and to only promote women's employment insofar as it did not conflict with motherhood rather than to promote women's full-time employment by addressing the structural issues that prevented it. Even the Equal Employment Opportunity Law is operating within a framework where motherhood is the natural and expected course of a woman's life, and the idea that motherhood needs protection is rarely challenged. This cultural belief that motherhood and full-time work outside of the home are completely irreconcilable is pretty apparent in Tomino's work thus far. A couple of episodes ago, we were talking about all of the different mothers in Gundam and how negatively the working mothers are portrayed. They are always shown to be neglecting their motherly duties to their children. And their children are always messed up over it. Laws granting women certain rights and protections in employment had long been tied up in the state's interest in women's fertility. During Japan's imperial expansion, the state needed a growing young population. After the post-war baby boom, concerns about the social and economic effects of Japan's aging population caused the state to, once again, fixate on women's fertility. Before the Equal Opportunity Employment Law, these laws dealt with specific issues like menstruation leave, and restrictions on overtime or hazardous work, all of which were seen as protecting the woman's current and future fertility. The new law replaced many of these, but still contained guidelines about treatment of employees during pregnancy and postpartum. These laws have been subject to a lot of debate among Japanese feminists who, on the one hand, object to how motherhood is prioritized, as if it is the most important thing a woman does, but on the other hand, consider these kinds of protections that address women's specific needs essential to keeping women in the workforce. However, these debates can feel moot since the laws themselves are so toothless. For example, the EEOL encouraged employers to provide one year of childcare leave, but few had, even five years after the law's passage. In general, women had the best working conditions in industries with strong unions. For example, quote, 200 companies in the electrical machinery industry made news in April 1990 when, in response to union pressure, they introduced a system permitting the re-employment of women workers after an unsalaried one-year childcare leave, during which time the companies would pay their workers social security and health insurance fees. 
Ooh, so generous. <laughs> the child care leave law, passed in 1991 and implemented in 1992, was designed so that either parent could request unpaid leave to care for an infant under one year of age, without fear of dismissal, but merely asks employers to endeavor to stipulate the wages and type of work the employee would return to. And again, there were no penalties for non-compliance. I'm sure you can guess how few men took advantage of this dubious benefit. Businesses had blamed the old workplace protections for women for the low number of women in the workforce, that these protections had disincentivized hiring women. There was plenty of opposition to the EEOL too, particularly the parts aimed at making regular employment more accessible to women. For many companies, women in low-paid, low-prestige, irregular positions gave them some flexibility. It was easier to lay them off in a downturn at a time when being able to retain your full-time workers promoted loyalty. Many business leaders also argued that the time demands on full-time workers necessitated a full-time caregiver at home. It was taken as a given that any married couple would want children. As Maloney summarizes, quote, whether this division of labor was actually profitable or beneficial, either for companies or for the nation, is beside the point. What is important here is that companies, in seeking to preserve this division, acted as if it were both profitable and beneficial. Opportunities had increased for women who needed to work, and there was greater acceptance of women who wanted to work, but the ideal working woman scenario was still presented as that of a middle or upper class family with the husband as breadwinner and an income high enough that the wife could choose whether or not to work. Even in the mid-90s, companies openly flouted the law, telling women to their face that the law, quote, wasn't really accepted at their company, that they had a different salary and promotion track for women, or that women were hired to be an emotional comfort and support to the men, that they were hired to be good for morale. One of my favorite sources this week is a contemporary analysis of the Virginia Slims Report of 1990, a survey conducted by a tobacco company whose products were aimed at women. But these surveys weren't about tobacco use. They were about women's feelings on a wide range of subjects, mostly work, marriage, sexism, and 1990 was the first time that the survey was conducted in Japan. Although 64% of Japanese women agreed with the statement, today women are looked on with more respect, women still had a strong sense of being discriminated against, especially in the public sphere. Asked whether women were extended equal opportunities with regard to salary, promotion, or being considered for executive positions, the majority of women said no. Though many women derived satisfaction and meaning from their working life, this was undermined by their experience of discrimination. As one of Rosenberger's young single office lady interviewees put it, work would have a different meaning to us if we knew we would get promoted like men. Moreover, compared to women in the United States, women in Japan experienced very little sense of sisterhood in the workplace. In the United States, women workers at this time perceived women bosses as much more supportive than men, more than 10 points while in Japan, the margins were much smaller. Outside the workplace, things are murkier. Asked whether men or women have more advantages in society, 60% of Japanese women answered neither, a response I found surprising, but which the paper's authors explain as coming from that concept of separate spheres. Quote, in Japan, it has been taken for granted that men should be in the public sphere and women be at home in the private sphere. 
and that men and women's spheres each have advantages and disadvantages. The outside world may be male-centered and disagreeable, but a woman has privileges in her home as a mother and a housewife. A man's over-demanding roles were not enviable or desirable. This gendered division was, for many women, not regarded as a social issue. Similarly, though women expressed annoyance at derogatory and degrading treatment by men at work and in public, most of them considered this an interpersonal issue rather than a social one. This is taken to explain why, when asked whether a women's movement was necessary in the 90s, only 26% of women said yes, even though 86% said yes when asked, do you support improvements in the status of women? Respondents seemed to expect that improvements to the status of women would happen naturally over time, making a women's movement unnecessary. It is also important to point out that the women's lib movement of the 1970s had been characterized in the mass media in a very distorted manner and broadly sneered at. More recent advancements were completely disconnected from this earlier movement and were thought to have come about in a more understated and less dramatic way. That, quote, women were liberated without any particularly visible effort. Why then should there be a women's movement which is confrontational toward men and causes so much strife? Japanese feminists and feminist organizations were still active in Japanese society throughout the 80s and 90s across a broad variety of issues. But the authors of the Virginia Slims paper saw this activity as more fragmented than in the 70s. Moreover, there was a growing awareness that administrative and legislative remedies to inequality, like the EEOL, were inadequate. So in the 80s and 90s, more feminist activism focused on media portrayals of women. To quote Vera Mackey, Reform of institutions would be meaningless without reform of the attitudes and ideologies which informed the practices of these institutions. Change in Japanese society would also require a change in men's attitudes towards women. Women may have wanted the threefold life and a more companionate, cooperative marriage, but when asked what type of women do men find more appealing, 66% of women and 69% of men said women who are dependent on men. Japanese women understood their careers to be incompatible with what most men wanted or expected in a marriage, and knowing that the pool of potential husbands felt this way would certainly have affected women's behavior and marital expectations. As one such woman put it, when men get home, they want the lights on. Men want their own wives to cut the vegetables. They want their wife making a life. In the Virginia Slims report, Japanese women expressed pretty strongly negative attitudes towards men. The majority agreed with the statements, in general, men are basically willful and self-centered. Men are interested in their work and life outside the home and fail to pay attention to family matters. And most men want women to be obedient in order to boost their own egos. Many women of this era, reacting against what they had seen of their own parents' marriages, had very different expectations of a potential spouse. Financial security was still important, but love and mutual respect and support were more important. The previous generation had married with the expectation that their lives would, at least financially and materially, improve steadily over time. Young women from the 90s onward had no such expectation. From the young women's magazine Click, 1993, Marriage is okay, but I can't give up this ease. I can return any time, eat anything, no one complains this freedom. Sometimes it is lonely, but if I put out energy, the song of living alone. 
many women seemed resigned to the loss of personal funds, loss of freedom, and loss of free time occasioned by marriage. Even those expressing negative feelings about it only suggested that it would further delay them marrying, not prevent it entirely. These conflicting feelings are borne out in the statistics on marriage. The mean age at first marriage climbed steadily for men and women from 1955 to 2015. In 1955, the average woman married at age 23.8. By 1995, that age had risen to 26.3. In 1975, only 20% of women between the ages of 20 and 25 were unmarried. By 1990, it was over 40%. Some of you will remember the phrases Christmas cake and New Year soba, which I think we've discussed before. They are expressions of what many people considered appropriate ages for women to marry. No one wants a Christmas cake the day after Christmas, meaning that women should marry by the time they are 25, And then the same idea, but applied to New Year's Eve soba noodles, and so to age 30, as the average marrying age increased. And yet, the percentage of women unmarried at age 50 had not increased much in the previous decades. It was 3.3% in 1970, rose to 4.3% in 1975, and hovered around that number through 1990, though from then on, it started climbing and never stopped. Most women did marry, even if they waited longer than previous generations had. Divorce rates were increasing, but were generally low, and in absolute terms, the number of single-parent households was small. When a divorced couple had children, custody was single, with no visitation and little to no contact with the non-custodial parent, a practice which I believe is only just now starting to change. Mothers were usually granted custody, and while there were rules about child support, there was little to no enforcement. A quick aside, one big change, per Anne Imamura's book chapter on family in modern Japanese culture, was that the increase in divorces of middle-aged people attracted a lot of public and media attention, creating an iconic image of contemporary divorce, the couple who split up just as the man is about to retire. After spending their whole working lives working long hours and leaving household management to their wives, such men had neither domestic skills nor connections to the communities in which they lived, and their marriages were strained by the impending merging of the two spheres. Okay, back to talking about young women. In Rosenberger's interviews, young unmarried working women expressed greater enthusiasm for children than for marriage, But there is a strong bias against raising children outside of marriage. I couldn't find a statistic for the early 90s, but as of 2005, only 1% of births in Japan were to unmarried parents. Abortion had been a crime since 1882, like I mentioned earlier, the uh, growing empire wanted to keep birth rates high, but was legalized in certain circumstances by the Yusei Hogoho, translated as Eugenic Protection Law, which went into effect in 1948. A 1949 revision allowed for abortion in cases where the mother's physical condition or economic circumstances meant that continuing the pregnancy or giving birth would endanger the mother's health. And another revision in 1952 allowed abortions solely on the recommendation of a doctor, where before cases had to be referred to a board of examiners. So abortion was readily available. 
although there were efforts by right-wing political groups in the early 70s and early 80s to remove the economic circumstances clause. Although certain contraceptive drugs and devices, such as spermicides, condoms, and diaphragms, were legal and available, oral contraception, aka the pill, was not legalized until 1999, and even then was not covered by national health insurance. I remember before Roe v. Wade in the United States, Japan was one of the places where wealthy American women who needed abortions could go to get them. I think it was kind of a regional split. If you were on the East Coast, you went to Europe. If you were on the West Coast, you went to Japan. I remember hearing about this at some point. We didn't look up a a statistic or a source on it, but we both remember reading about it previously. The rising age of marriage, bias against raising children outside of marriage, and access to contraception and abortion meant that the mean age of childbearing also increased. Interestingly, from 1950 to 1975, mean age of childbearing decreases from 29.66 years old to 27.41. But I suspect this is because, as this is mean age of childbearing in total, not mean age at first childbirth, and the women in the 1950s had more children on average, this was the post-war baby boom, some of the children accounted for in the statistic would have been second, third, fourth children born when a woman was older, skewing the average upwards. 1975 was the low point for the post-war period, and from then on, the age increased steadily, and was 29.7 by 1992. Japan's total fertility rate, or the average number of children that women will have throughout their reproductive years, was 4.1 in 1950, dropping almost 50% over the next decade to just 2.17 by 1960. Japan had a very intense baby boom, but also a pretty short one compared to other post-war countries. It dropped below 2 by 1980, and in 1990 was the lowest ever recorded at that point. Two of my sources disagree on the exact number, 1.65 or 1.54. Either way, lowest they had recorded. The combination of financial pressures with the desire to maintain a middle-class lifestyle may have decreased the total number of children most women had, but women still expressed a strong desire to have children. Beyond these personal feelings, one source described the high status of motherhood in Japanese society as very appealing compared to the low status of women generally. A concept I will have to delve into more thoroughly next time, because listeners, I feel very foolish. This piece, originally carved out of a different research piece that was getting too long, has also become too long. This week, I focused on statistical trends, legal changes, and the like. Next time, the focus will be on how this generation of women were characterized in public discourse life stages and their natural progression, cultural assumptions about the role of mother in a family, the role of consumer culture and market segmentation in creating new images of that role, and my favorite, moral panics. Look forward to it. Next time on episode 10.5, A Time and Place to Die. We research and discuss episode 5 of Victory Gundam and these Bespas gay. Good for them. That's bullying. That's power harassment. Heartbreaking. The most pompous person you know makes some good points.
drugs, whippings. Vespa sure knows how to party. No, no, he's not actually in school at all. That's better, right? They say thick thighs save lives, but missile quads destroy bods. Bespa rides at dawn. You know he's serious because he put his cap on backwards. And, okay, but seriously, they don't have even one more pilot? Please listen to it. Mobile Suit Breakdown is written, recorded, and produced by us, Tom and Nina, in scenic New York City, within the ancestral and unceded land of the Lenape people, and made possible by listeners like you. The opening track is Wasp by Misha Dioxin. The closing music is Long Way Home by Spinning Ratio. The recap music is Slow by Lloyd Rogers. You can find links to the sources for our research, the music used in the episode, additional information about the Lenape people, and more in the show notes on our website, GundamPodcast.com. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can email hosts at GundamPodcast.com or look for links to our social media accounts on our website. And if you would like to support the show, please share us with your friends, leave a nice review wherever you listen to podcasts, or support us financially at GundamPodcast.com slash Patreon. You can find links and more ways to help out at GundamPodcast.com slash support. Thank you for listening. The Gundam fandom has been corrupted by wrong opinions, and the only way to purify ourselves is by exposing them to the light of day. For instance, did you know that Daryl Archideld thinks the real reason local libraries are losing funding isn't because of a myopic obsession with making governments function like profit-driven private companies to the detriment of public services, or because of a decades-long campaign to privatize and commodify every aspect of our lives? It's because unlike the electronic library under Uso's home, they don't have flight simulators in them. Well, Daryl's opinion might be wrong, but I think it's still worth a shot. So please, won't you help us to save the New York public library system by sending us $10,000 so that we can buy a set of immersive Gundam arcade pods? It's for the children. We could make our local library the most popular library in the whole Brooklyn public (laughs) library system. But Nina, our most local library is the research library in the room that we're currently in. We could fit a couple of Gundam pods in here, right? We'll allow one child per year to peruse the library. Willy Wonka style, there will be tickets. (laughs) Do you want to get pizza tonight? Uh, That was just a thought, but sure. I could also do burgers. I love that I heard a sound effect in this show and immediately thought of Gundam Battle Operations. (laughs) Because I've heard that sound effect so many times in Gundam Battle Operations. (laughs) I don't play. I listen to Tom play. I find it too stressful. (laughs) Had a moment in this where I was like, Tomino, you old fox, I recognize that trick. And it's when you demonstrate the power of a really strong new gun by having it miss but merely being close to the beam is still enough to destroy a mobile suit or melt a leg or something. I don't think I've ever seen a beam brick a mobile suit before. 
It's so strong that even though it didn't hit, just the little scattered energy particles bouncing off the hull of the, the Zolo are enough to fry the electronics. The way they subtitled the line from that pilot just made me think, no, Marbet, your beam gain is too different. They'll kill you. <laughs> Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> From 2023, that just sounds like being a 20-something. It's 2024 now. <laughs>